welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. Recording this episode on November 27th, 2018, I've got some wonderful guests, Nathan Cortez, Sharona Hoffman, and Abby Gluck. So why don't we, uh, starting with you, Nathan, uh, quickly go around the table, introduce yourselves, and uh, tell us what you do and what your interest in this topic is. Hi, great to be here, Nick. Um Long-time listener of the show. I uh, teach at SMU Law School in Dallas, and I teach courses on food and drug law, health law, administrative law. And my interest is in how our legal system and regulatory system uh, handles new technologies, with a particular emphasis on FDA, uh, digital health, big data, and the like. So we share a lot of interests. Uh, hi, Nick. This is Avi Gluck. I'm a professor at Yale Law School, where I'm also the faculty director of our Solomon Center for Health Law and Policy. Uh, I focus on national governance, federalism, and health law issues. But my claim to fame in this context is that I was the uh, co-convener of a recent conference on artificial intelligence, telemedicine, um, and technology in healthcare that led us to this wonderful podcast we're having today. So thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Sharona Hoffman. I too am delighted to join you. I'm a professor of law and bioethics at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and also the co-director of the Law Medicine Center. And uh, I write a lot about various legal and ethical implications of health information technology. And for our purposes, I'll be talking about the risks of discrimination uh, arising from big data and artificial intelligence. And of course, I'm Nick Terry, professor of law at uh, IU McKinney in Indianapolis, and uh, a big fan of uh, these wonderful folks on the show. So uh, big welcome back, Nathan and Abby, and huge first pub welcome to you, Sharona. It's about time. This is a uh, second follow-up, Abby, to that wonderful workshop you put together. Both in New Haven and then on this pod, we've had some really interesting discussions about the future of big data and data-driven healthcare technologies. We've asked whether we'll see any clean sheet of paper regulatory actions to the potential access, data protection, safety, quality, discrimination issues that we're all foreseeing. But I wonder, uh, for present purposes, whether we shouldn't emphasize that uh, it's important not to lose sight of the reality that the progenitors of future medicine, and in some cases, the actual future products, maybe, are already with us. And so regulators and industry are working within some existing frameworks works. And with the expertise here, uh, uh, we'd really like to drill down on some of those issues. So, Sharona, let's start with you. There are very real, although I suppose uh, you, you should uh, ag- agree or disagree with that uh, with that lead-in, but there is a sense that there are real questions of AI opening up for uh, discrimination based on predictions of future disabilities and so on. And with the expertise you bring in the area of ADA, GINA, and so on, 
can you sketch out for us what the what the existing legal system looks like as as it would be approached today by these new technologies? We have a lot of laws that prohibit discrimination based on disability. Uh, and examples are the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act, the Fair Housing Act, a provision in the Affordable Care Act. So you might think that at least on paper, we have pretty comprehensive protection against disability-based discrimination. But my argument is that in this era of big data and artificial intelligence, that is not really true. And it's not true because none of these laws reach discrimination that is based on predictions of future health problems. So, for example, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act covers disability, which is defined in three ways, a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. That is a current disability, a record of such an impairment, that is a past disability, or being regarded as having such an impairment, that is being regarded rightly or wrongly as having an impairment currently. But there's nothing in the statute that prohibits employers from refusing to hire or terminating someone because they think that person is healthy right now, but going to develop an illness in the future. And now, of course, we increasingly have the ability to predict future health problems. So, for example, deep learning algorithms can predict heart disease based on analysis of the retina. And that got some media coverage, so people might have seen stories about retina analysis and heart disease. Machine learning algorithms can predict risk of heart disease, stroke, and diabetes based on scanning electronic health records. AI is used to model speech patterns of patients at high risk of psychosis. So just listening to how people talk, you might be able to reach some conclusions about their future psychiatric health. Now, why might anyone want this information? Well, a lot of parties are highly motivated to know about your future health risks. So employers are a prime example. They want workers who are going to be productive, who aren't going to have absenteeism problems, and perhaps more important, most importantly, people who are not going to generate high medical costs and high health insurance costs. And the same is true for lenders, disability insurers, long-term care insurers. They all want to know about individuals' future health prospects. So uh, the recommendation I have made is pretty straightforward. I think we should expand that regarded as provision of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I mentioned earlier, and uh, modify it so that it covers people who are regarded as likely to develop physical or mental impairments in the future. And then we could adopt similar language in other anti-discrimination provisions. Now, we do have one law that reaches predictive data, and that is GINA the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. That law prohibits discrimination based on genetic information, um, but only genetic information. And of course, a primary value of genetic information is that it tells you what diseases people might be vulnerable to in the future. So my recommendation is not really a departure in any radical way from existing approaches. It would just make the Americans with Disabilities Act more consistent with GINA. And I think 
think that in this time of, of these very sophisticated uh, predictive capabilities, employees and others are going to need this kind of protection. And it's a good opportunity for the law to catch up to, to current technologies. In addition to sort of the landscape of discrimination laws, I know we're going to talk with Nate very shortly about how FDA law and regulation is going to apply to this context. But I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about the privacy context. I mean, the discrimination stuff is related to uh, the uh, the privacy issues. And in particular, at the conference at Yale, we learned quite shockingly about just how much of this data is being captured and oftentimes sold to third parties. Um, really tr- raises you know quite a lot of privacy considerations that probably do play into the discrimination concerns that you've raised. Um, Shona, have you been working on those issues at all? I write a lot about privacy. And of course, a, a major reason that we are concerned about privacy is because of the potential for harm and, and the potential for discrimination, the potential that people will be rejected from various opportunities and benefits by employers, insurers, and others. And it is absolutely true that there is a lot of trafficking in this kind of, of data. There is an emerging industry of data brokers by some counts, hundreds if not thousands of data brokers that collect this kind of information, organize it, sell it. Um, Apparently, you can actually buy lists of individuals identified by name and the conditions that they currently have. And as these predictive capabilities um, develop, I'm sure you will be able to buy lists of people with the conditions that they are predicted to have in the future. Um, And there are already things that are very obvious that predict future health risks, such as smoking, exercise, diet, etc., that um, may well be available through social media or, or other sources. And so privacy is, is a huge concern. And the laws that we have, such as HIPAA, don't really comprehensively protect people uh, with respect to privacy when it comes to data broker brokers and other parties that are not healthcare providers or health insurers. So Nate, I know you have uh, a lot to say about the FDA, but I think you also have some stuff to say about this privacy question and the collection of data by third parties. Do you want to jump in here before we turn to the FDA questions? Yeah, sure. I mean... Uh, I'm a big fan of Sharona's work, and I've learned a lot about privacy regulation through it. I think one interesting question that maybe draws discrimination, privacy, and FDA regulation together is the question of timing. Uh, When should the law be updated, or when should new regulations be issued to deal with some of these things? I think for a long time, we've had this conventional wisdom that these are new, exciting industries. You know, Silicon Valley has generated so many jobs in the economy, so much excitement, so much investment uh, that we tend to take a hands-off approach. And for decades, Silicon Valley has kind of enjoyed this uh, laissez-faire approach and software in general has enjoyed kind of a laissez-faire approach from the government. But one problem with that is that these massive industries uh, emerge and and they mature before government can really set guidelines. And so, as Sharona was discussing, we have these data brokers that collect thousands and thousands of different data points about each of us. And from these data points, you can make pretty strong inferences about our current and future states of health. And we don't really have laws that anticipate that. And the longer we go without updating our laws or regulations, the more entrenched those industries become. And so I think you're seeing 
seeing this pattern across you know the digital health spectrum over the past several years is that things change quickly uh, the technologies you know some some are adopted widely and once they become entrenched they become pretty powerful lobbying counterforces that prevent you know prevent the kind of robust uh, consideration you might need on Capitol Hill or you know in agency offices so I think that's a big problem and this is there's not a ton of good administrative law scholarship on the timing question there's some of it and I've I've tried to dig into it a little bit but you know it's we're trying to get the porridge just right here we don't want to regulate too early to stifle you know, innovation we don't want to uh, regulate too late because we we run into the problem of entrenchment um, so when is the right time I think you know when you see massive widespread abuses and problems I think it's kind of past time to jump in do you find it rather depressing that these potentially incredible technologies for improving our lives, improving our health, are not being used primarily, at least at the moment, for that, but rather are to open up more sort of schisms in the access to healthcare or affordable healthcare, the type of healthcare that we get. Um, if you, if you, if we had a single pool, a single risk pool, um, then these rent seekers wouldn't have any uh, initial, any uh, incentive uh, to go out and. And, uh, collect this data for these kinds of purposes. That it's that it's a healthcare data problem, but it's also a healthcare problem. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think the technology absolutely does have a potential to to improve lives. I mean, if you have some kinds of predictive data, you can do better screening. You can change your lifestyle. Uh, you can plan for the future. Get insurance and so on. So uh, we don't want to discount that value. Um, um, but it is true that as soon as the information is out there, given the way um, business works in the United States, given the way different kinds of insurance work, I mean, not not as much health insurance. We still have anti-discrimination provisions that apply to that, but other types of insurance, long-term care, disability, life, etc. You certainly are going to see anyone who can get their hands on this data uh, try to take advantage of it, and you know we often see all sorts of unintended consequences uh, related to technology, and this is certainly a good example of that. So, Nathan, I hope we could go back to the timing question, because uh, at the conference on the panel on which you spoke, I was actually totally floored by how little FDA seems to be doing in this area, um, how reluctant they are to jump in and overregulate as technology emerges, and your own discussion of the sort of unique approach they've taken to putting a toe in the market. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and give us a sense of the landscape? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the, the FDA has been keeping an eye on these technologies for decades. I mean, really going back to the very first medical computers in the 80s, the FDA has kind of had a, an eye on what's happening, but it's never felt really comfortable uh, asserting regulation. Uh, you know, the definition of its jurisdiction depends on the definition of device. And so there's always been a little bit of uncertainty over which products qualify as devices and which don't. So some of that reluctance is the FDA not being entirely sure which products it can credibly regulate and which products it can't. Uh, so I think that uncertainty has kind of frozen the FDA somewhat. Uh, to its credit, it's it's tried to educate itself. It's building more internal capacity, uh, hiring you know computer software engineers and the like, uh, building its expertise. It's a little late 
to the game, uh, the FDA relies heavily on non-binding guidance, which a lot of other agencies do, but I, this can be a weakness. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very much a challenge for the agency. I think they're reluctant of their own jurisdiction. They're reluctant given their own inexperience and perhaps relative lack of expertise. I think they're also paying close attention to Congress and to constituents who warn the FDA not to be too aggressive. Uh, you have you know several congressional hearings over the past six, seven, eight years uh, in which congressmen are expressing concern that the FDA is going to mess this up and regulate too much. You know it's one bright spot in our economy. We don't want federal regulators stepping in and uh, you know kind of strangling the industry in its crib. Some of that's overwrought. I mean, I think we can have it both ways. I think we can enjoy kind of the benefits of these new innovations while also imposing some fair and smart protections on them. I don't think it's necessary that companies have access to all your personal data for an unlimited amount of time in order to make valuable predictions that can help in diagnosis and treatment. Uh, Likewise, I don't think it's asking too much for companies to generate some reliable data uh, in the device context, showing that their device actually does what it says it does. Uh, So again, I think it's kind of a you often hear you know cries that the FDA is going to overregulate but I think it's kind of a false dichotomy I don't think it has to be one or the other we have total innovation and freedom versus regulation and, and stifling of innovation I think there is a happy medium and you know the FDA is I think cautiously trying to experiment with some approaches that will achieve some sort of oversight um, it's incomplete and you know a lot of us have been pretty vocal about pointing out where it's incomplete and what should be done. So I've always found the definition of medical device to be uh, difficult because it, it, it defines device more by what it isn't than by what it is. Um, and I wonder if we could sort of um, hone in on on something pretty obvious like IBM's Watson, uh, which we hear a lot about. Um, I heard a presentation from uh, their chief technology officer at another uh, AI conference just uh, 10 days ago or so. Um, is IBM Watson the health the health Watson? Uh, is that a medical device? How how do we start getting up to that question? Is it not a device because IBM isn't selling little Watsons? Um, you know, at Best Buy or something, but rather is providing a service. Um, what? How do you approach a, a, a big AI play like that from a medical device definitional perspective? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, the, the tricky part about the defin- the federal definition of a medical device is that it's a functional definition. So a medical device is anything that's intended to perform certain functions, diagnose, cure, mitigate, treat, or prevent diseases or other conditions. And so technically, if I were to if I were to take a pen cap and market it as a surgical instrument, and that's my intent, uh, then that would be a medical device subject to FDA regulation. So, you know, obviously, so again, the something that's flustered the FDA and lawyers trying to counsel companies on these issues, I might add, for decades is where do you draw the line with computers? Um, you know, some computer programs are so simple that they all they really do is replicate kind of a reference source, like you can access great 
Grey's Anatomy uh, on a computer. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have really sophisticated software that might highlight uh, tumors um, on a CT scan uh, or might uh, give actionable advice to surgeons or physicians. So I think that's that's the more enticing technology. And you know, IBM Watson has been used in a number of facilities around the country. Uh, MD Anderson down in Houston had a pretty high profile uh, partnership with IBM Watson. It didn't end very well. The UT no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> the UT system performed a, performed a audit, founding that you know they ended up wasting tens of millions of dollars without much to show for it. But you know, not every foray into this is going to be a smashing success, and so you know you can't blame facilities for for trying to to use that computing power to to better diagnose and treat patients. You know, the whole clinical decision support uh, series of technologies is really, really hard to categorize. And the FDA's tried, Congress tried, uh, you know, in the 21st Century Cures Act, they tried to draw a line between clinical decision support that was subject to FDA regulation and clinical decision support that was not. No one was quite satisfied with that, or at least, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't perfectly clear. So well, I, I, I disagree. It was perfect. Perfectly clear, Nathan. The statute said that a CDS is not a medical device unless it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, clients will be satisfied with that advice. You could say, you know, it is. You know, we know it when we see it. Um, yeah, I mean, IBM Watson. It's you know, one one thing the FDA has has done well to its credit is take a explicitly risk based approach to these technologies. And so, for programs being used by sophisticated research and treatment centers like MD Anderson. MD Anderson. You have some of the most talented, you know, educated physicians and oncologists in the country, and they're using this software to inform their decision making. Uh, like you said, it would be a totally different story if you could download the IBM Watson app on your phone, and uh, you know, it would if it purported to give you some actionable diagnosis. That might be different. Um, but I don't know. We have WebMD. Uh, we have all kinds of diagnostic apps. Some of them are useful. Some aren't. Uh, the problem is that consumers and even physicians really don't know how to tell the difference. You know, you can you can use the reputation of a facility like the Cleveland Clinic has partnered with some digital health companies and initiatives. So if you have reputable facilities partnering with digital health companies and generating you know consumer facing products, you might use that as a proxy. And I think that's what the FDA has in mind with its pre-cert program. But otherwise, there are thousands of products out there, and nobody knows what's useful and what's not i think that's that's a big problem so is are things like uh, the preset program and uh commissioner gottlieb's other sort of more innovative approaches are they designed to try and get to this scalability problem this this uh, vast array of everything from my new watch up to ibm's watson is, is are these attempts to sort of break the puzzle up a little bit into um more easily digestible uh clumps yeah i think that's probably a fair characterization i think i think the pre-cert program is trying to provide carrots and in any in any big diverse market there will be companies that respond to those regulatory carrots uh you know the fda is promising a basket of goodies in response for going through certain procedures 
procedural protocols, notifications, process improvements, and the like. Uh, I think companies with resources, companies that are thinking long-term will respond to that, big companies that are able to. But the problem in this market is quantity-wise, a big proportion of the market uh, involves small companies, startups who don't have the resources or the knowledge or in-house expertise or just don't care. Uh, They're not going to respond to carrots as much as sticks. So what you're kind of missing with the FDA's new approach, which I think is worthwhile. I think experimentation, regulatory experimentation in this area uh, is worthwhile, given that Congress still hasn't updated the 76 device amendments to to account for these new technologies very much. Um, We have no comprehensive software regulation in the statute. And so I think regulatory experimentation is a good thing. I think they're focusing on providing carrots and not sticks. And I think we need some sticks, given the number of really sketchy apps and, and and programs out there. So, you know, the devil's in the details. If if there is robust enforcement, uh, I think that can send powerful signals. But you're always going to have, you know, the, the fly-by-night operators that really don't care. So, kind of, as, as we discussed at the conference, one-size-fits-all regulation doesn't necessarily work given this, the sheer volume of manufacturers and producers in the market and their variety. Well, Nathan, you had also mentioned that, you know, there are a few things the FDA is not doing right. Could you tell us what you think? you tell us what you think the most important thing FDA should be doing differently? Just building off the last point, I'd like to see them take more enforcement actions. You know, the first enforcement action they took against a mobile health app was probably in response to congressional testimony where an attorney testified that there was there was an app on the market that hadn't been cleared by the FDA and it probably should have gone through clearance and it was making claims that were not substantiated. And within a few weeks, the FDA had sent a, a regulatory letter to the company. Isn't there, isn't there a vagueness problem here? If we don't know whether my WebMD or my Fitbit or my diabetes tracking app counts as something the FDA can regulate, how is it really fair to require companies to guess about whether their uh, app should be regulated? Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge. But I think, you know, if for the companies that can, that can afford legal advice in this area, I think lawyers can give you a pretty good idea of one, whether it would qualify as a medical device and two, the likelihood that the FDA would object. And I think it's the second criterion there, the second factor where we don't see much activity. The Federal Trade Commission has taken more enforcement actions, I think, against these types of products than the FDA has. You know, the FTC brought actions against a few acne apps that claimed that you could hold a phone screen close to your face and that alternating flashing lights on the screen would would treat your acne. Um, there are a few other products where the FTC brought enforcement actions, you know, the FDA could easily send 100 warning letters tomorrow to send a signal to companies that, you know, they need support for their products or they need to go through the FDA clearance system. So, you know, if if you're an attorney counseling startups in this area, you'd say, look, I can not with perfect certainty, but I can give you a decent idea of whether or not this would be a product uh, regulated by the FDA. And I've, I've talked to startup companies in an informal capacity who've had questions like that. And, you know, you, you have to you have to communicate the uncertainty here. You have to say, you know, it's not entirely clear, but you can usually give a good idea. But, you know, companies asking for advice also want to know consequences. And, you know, in some cases, I could imagine lawyers saying, you know, if you decide not to go through the FDA's 
formal clearance process, you're probably not going to ever show up on the FDA's radar. Increasingly, we also see what I guess we'd call hybrid devices. I mean, my new Apple Watch has two new sensors in it compared to my last one. Um, One that is misbehaving at the moment and keeps on telling me I'm falling over when I'm not, which I assume was not uh, subject to FDA approval, but an EKG, which we know was subject to de novo. So presumably that's another sort of complication that we have to look at. But let's, uh, we're already getting quite um, uh, late in in the pod. Let's let's talk uh, more generally for a bit as we wind up. Uh, Sharona, sometimes I wonder whether, in fact, we're sort of rushing to regulate a little bit, you know, even though the other side of me says, regulate now, you know, that that maybe the technology is still deficient. There was a story in Stat News just this morning that in our country, patient data is stored across more than 700 different electronic medical record systems. And that although a large number of the most hospitals use one of the top uh, six, I think it is, EMR providers, you can't say the same about primary care and smaller healthcare offices. And so all of that sort of data that's in those with those smaller providers is sort of shut out of the big data system and 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 the kind of benefits that we hope could be extracted. Any thoughts about what we were discussing with Nathan or along those lines? Regulation is uh, is a mixed bag. So in the area of electronic health record systems, for example, on the one hand, I think we certainly rushed to to put into place the certification program and the meaningful use and the incentives. And therefore, we got very flawed technology because everybody wanted a piece of the pie. Vendors started putting out systems that that were imperfect in many ways and that uh, many healthcare providers bemoan because they're difficult to work with. They are flawed. Um, And it was because of all these regulations that basically required healthcare providers to have systems within a, a particular period of time that this happened. On the other hand, um, I've I've written in certain pieces that perhaps we needed more regulation in the sense of much more thorough testing of these systems. These systems are tested, you know, very superficially. It takes maybe a day, and vendors get the testing scripts in, in advance and so on. And so, if we made electronic health record systems more like devices that are regulated by the FDA, we might be better off because we'd have clinical testing, um, we would slow down the process of launching them in the marketplace. And in fact, the discussion that that we had earlier reminded me of electronic health record systems, where there was a big debate about whether the FDA should regulate them. And then it turned out the FDA didn't regulate them, but the Office of the National Coordinator within the Department of Health and Human Services did. And I'm wondering if some of these other technologies actually might move away from the FDA but be regulated elsewhere somehow in the system. So clearly we've learned that Abby puts on a great conference. If we were all lucky enough to be invited to talk there again in a decade's time, what do you think you'll be talking about? And I guess also to Abby, what will you be asking them to talk about? You know, um, I think by then, you know, God help us if we still have questions about interoperability like we have now in the electronic health records context, (laughs) let's hope that we don't, uh, you know, replicate the problem that we've seen develop with our failure to have, you know, truly electronic interoperability. Uh, I think 
think that we're going to be talking about things like, has the practice of medicine changed? How has medical training changed? And we'll probably be talking about, to a great extent, like we always do, the division of labor between the states and the federal government. I mean, we've been talking today mostly about federal regulation, but the, to the extent that these technologies are affecting the practice of medicine and medical malpractice regimes uh, and, and other doctrines, um, you know, they're going to have to be regulated at the state level potentially as well. And um, I think that's one of the things. I also think, Nick, you will be invited. We're also going to be doing a project on the 100-year-old American of the Solomon Center. So you will definitely be able to come to that and be our key specimen. Um, but we'll be uh, delighted to have you at any time. You'll always be a leader in the field, in all seriousness. I also suspect that we will still be talking about concerns relating to uh, discrimination. Those seem to be ever-present um, and they just take different forms. So um, I'm hoping that I have full employment into the future uh, talking about my areas of expertise. Yeah, I think uh, I think both of you are right. I, I agree with Abby that I think uh, hopefully 10 years from now, we're talking about some concrete black letter law in this area, not just guidance and notices and experiments. But yeah, I think one big question is how do you differentiate these technologies from the practice of medicine? The line has already been blurred and it's going to increasingly blur. And so that's a big distinction between federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction. And uh, it was great that, that Abby and the organizers were able to get someone from the the National Conference of State Legislatures at the conference because, you know, states are considering the limits of their jurisdiction and the federal government is considering the limits of its jurisdiction. And so, you know, the lines are not clear and hopefully we we have some more mature, sophisticated thinking by then and, and that, you know, practitioners and companies have some have a clearer idea of who should be doing what. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, the AI conference that I was at, uh, as I said, 10 days ago uh, was... Um, uh, jointly sponsored by um, the Federation of State Medical Boards. And uh, there were about 60 representatives or 50 representatives from uh, different state boards. Um, and it was a, a really interesting discussion about how they saw their roles going forward and the issues. Um, I guess I'll, I'll throw in, if I, if, if I do somehow manage to persuade the nursing home to, to let me out for the day and visit New Haven, um, for that future conference, I I am concerned that what I'll be talking about is discrimination in the context of access, that these technologies will prove to be so expensive, but also highly beneficial, but they will not be made available to all. And that as new tech business takes off, it won't be the democratizing, cost-reducing, technology that we hope it will be, but rather will be something uh, that only increases the um, the economic divide uh, that we see before us. Just adding to that idea, I think that if we had a public option or Medicare for all, Medicare has been kind of a centralizing or maybe not centralizing, but it's been an 
avenue through which technology has been disseminated more widely around the country. So maybe in 10 years, we have a public option or some some way for people to buy into Medicare. And Medicare coverage policies will extend these technologies to more populations. I think it will also depend on, on regulation. Um, uh, in the area of electronic health record systems, certainly initially that was not widespread. Only resource-rich uh, entities were able to obtain them. And then we had the government come in and, and mandate uh, universal adoption of that technology. And so there might be some of that. The, the government might start dictating that all healthcare providers have to use certain highly, highly beneficial uh, capabilities. You know, I, I have to jump in here and say that if that's the road we want to go down, we got to get in early. I think with the electronic health records situation, the big companies got so entrenched that it's proved almost politically impossible to compel uh, them to do anything or to compel any uh, group of hospitals to use a particular brand. That's all the more reason I'm in favor of regulation on the early side, although I recognize the balance and not over-regulating as technologies develop. And that was the Week in Health Law. Big thank you to Professors Gluck, Cortez, and Hoffman. Let's see, Nathan, on Twitter, you are... At Nathan Cortez, one word. Sharona, you popped up on, on Twitter lately, I'm, I'm guessing because of a new publication. Uh, I actually am not that active on Twitter, so I have an account that on rare occasion has something, but uh, not, not probably worth following consistently. Well, you never know if we give a shout out for at aging with a plan, you might suddenly be the most popular law professor on Twitter. And Abby is at Yale AG. Sharona and Nathan, thank you so much. This was um, a lot of imposition on the two of you as far as uh, scheduling, and we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And Abby, uh, congratulations on a workshop. And thank you for uh, for pushing me to uh, to try and uh, dig deeper with the, with the pod into some of these issues. The pushing pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>